about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Uh, we are definitely storied people. We kind of, we're all living out stories to some extent. We're all driven by some conquest, uh, some success narrative, something that really excites us. But there's always a challenge in the way, right? There's always something, some obstacle, uh, some fear that we must work through. I am I'm working through this with my children. I love movies. I love watching them. My boys who are uh, eight, six, and three, uh, actually my three-year-old loves movies, but my other boys, they get so scared. They find themselves so emotionally entangled in the story, such that whenever there's something to fear, something to worry about, they start fretting and they run away. And I'm like, ah. So I've been talking about what is the nature of stories. Uh, If the story was the cat sat on the mat, the end, there'd be nothing to fear. They'd stay for the whole thing. But it'd be so boring. And so I guess when we look at real stories, particularly our real lives, those moments where there's fear, where there's an obstacle to overcome, that's part of the drama and tests our confidence in the hero. Uh, in the ability to actually succeed and conquer. I don't know what your fears are. I don't know what's driving you. I don't know what your success narrative is. But this passage here before us is very driven by fear. And it forces people into a question. It's a question that drives all of Mark's gospel. It's a question that particularly comes up and is very pressing, even presses upon us. The question is very simple and very profound. Who is Jesus? Many of us will have some kind of answer to that. But as we'll find in this passage, as we journey through their story of fear, as we even consider our own fears, the question is best answered in encounter. It is a heart question, not just a head question. Who is Jesus? We're going to see actually a bunch of stories telling the same story in what we have before us, a story that moves from fear to faith, from hopelessness to peace. And we're going to start even just a little bit before uh, chapter 5 in a story that some of us might know, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, because it's a very famous story. And it's a story as Jesus leaves the crowds behind and gets on a boat. Now, he's with his disciples, and some of those disciples are battle-hardened fishermen, and they know how to look after themselves, and they would have seen a million storms before, and yet they've survived every one of them. They find themselves in this particular night, in the middle of the lake, with such a storm that they fear for their very lives. It is a horrible storm, and they come to Jesus, who appears to be just relaxing, not particularly fearful of it, while they're all fretting, and they scream out, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drown?' It is so infuriating when you're really worried about something and your friend who sees the same thing doesn't seem to care at all. What is that? Do you not care about me? Do you not see what I'm seeing? I mean, the storm was there for everyone to see. Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. Then he says, why are you so afraid? As if that wasn't an obvious question why they were afraid. Do you still have no faith? That is such a rebuking question because it was so obvious why they were fearful. Yet Jesus is calling them to trust in him more than what is driving their fear. 
And to have faith in that moment would have been an incredible leap because the waves were so big, their fear so driving. And yet they failed to realize who it was that was asking them the question. Verse 41 is striking. They were terrified after Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus actually met them in their fear, solved the problem, and yet they now find themselves even more terrified by the solution to their predicament. Who is this, they ask themselves. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Here is the key question. Who is this? And they're terrified because they find themselves in the presence of someone who has power over the wind and the waves, and that's not normal. It's not normal to find someone who has power to deliver us from our fears in the calmness of his rebuke to the wind and the waves. They find themselves in the grip of the creator God. And if he can do that to the wind and the waves, then what on earth is he doing with them? The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is not going to be answered through a collection of facts that you can just read on Wikipedia. It's going to be answered as you story with Jesus, as you encounter him, as Jesus meets you in your story. What I find truly fascinating about this little episode is that the disciples are freaking out about the possibility of who this really is. But they have very little time to contemplate the implications to the reality of the question they've asked and the answer that stands before them, because they land on the other side. Mark's gospel constantly takes us from episode to episode, and this is another example of that, because as much as the, the, the fears have been stilled, the waves have been quietened, they find themselves on, on the bank of the lake and straight into the next story. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Jesus has led his disciples away from the crowds of Israel, away from kind of uh, the, the, the fanfare of kind of Jesus, the, the miracle worker, uh, to maybe find some time for retreat, for strategy, for kind of uh, refreshment, that, they, that he might go back to Israel kind of, you know, refreshed. Instead, he finds himself, deliberately so, given who we're talking about, in a place that no Jew should go. We find that Jesus has landed on the other side of the lake in Gentile territory, and it is a place that is full of unclean spirits, unclean animals, and a man so depraved that he's been unable to be restrained by chains, who cries out at night while cutting himself. Here is someone who is very afflicted, in great suffering, and possessed by demons. This is a confronting image then and certainly now. And that's where Jesus has been heading. It's like he's crossing the lake for the very purpose of what's about to unfold. He is not scared of where he shouldn't be. Instead, he finds himself in the midst of meeting the needs of a very needy person. It's a desperate and despairing situation. Verse 6, follow with me if you've got your scriptures open. When the possessed man saw Jesus from a distance... He ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Look at how he knows who Jesus is. In God's name, don't torture me. Jesus responds with a humanizing question. He's been named, Jesus is known to the speaker 
and yet he responds by saying, what is your name? But it is not the man with his backstory that answers. It's not a name that the townspeople would have recognised. Instead, the name comes back, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. A chilling answer. The answer of the, the many spirits that are within him. Legion would have been well understood by the first century listeners uh, as a, a reference to, to Roman power, to, to a group of soldiers. A legion was the collective noun for military uh, personnel. And it's for this reason that some commentators think that this is actually a parable of sorts about the control of Rome over the Jewish people uh, and how Jesus will, will kind of push back against that. But nonetheless, what is certain is there is a conflict of power here. Here we have a power that has driven a man to the end of his humanity, to the outskirts of town where nobody wants to have anything to do with him, who is ravaging this man. And there is Jesus who has just calmed the storm and has performed a number of healings and miracles on the other side of that lake. And how will this go down, this great spiritual conquest? But this is no battle like Harry Potter and Voldemort. There is no kind of epic duel to unfold here. It is quite anticlimactic. For Jesus just utters words of power, and it is so. See, in submission, the legion begged Jesus not to send them out to the area, and instead, to the surprise of us listeners and to those around, for sure, be sent into a herd of pigs. And Jesus does something quite remarkable as well. He, he allows that to happen. He gives permission for the demons to exercise their request. And they leave the man and then enter kind of 2,000 pigs who rush off a cliff and down into the bottom of a lake. Who is this? And, and why did he do that? On the first night of Alpha, which is a course I've been running down at Kuki Tanuki, um, inviting people to explore faith, hope, and meaning, and, and to see how Jesus contributes, uh, what, what his good news has to speak into that. Uh, I was asked a question, uh, just as we were meeting at, in a dinner uh, table group, and uh, the question was, I don't get why Christianity is so human supremacist. And I, it's a very Newtown question. Uh, and as we read this story, I can't help but feel that like, Jesus is kind of what he cares for this one man so much more than 2,000 pigs that he allowed this to happen. Couldn't he have found another way? Some of us, for that's a real question. For some of us, we don't quite understand the question. We don't really understand why Jesus allowed this to happen. Uh, it could be perhaps that he was protecting uh, the townspeople around that he would allow the demons to move into the pigs and not into the people. I mean, the demons were particularly attached to that land. They didn't want to leave that land. Where would they have gone if Jesus exercised them from that person? Jesus had not yet defeated Satan, so maybe this is a way of restraining him. Maybe it is a military image of the Roman rule being pushed back into the sea that they'd come from. I don't know. But as these questions come up, these kind of modern questions, as it were even, we're back to the question of who is Jesus? Can we trust him to be good? Does he care about animals? As we found ourselves chatting around the table that Monday night at Alpha, it was interesting to look at just exploring this question at kind of the picture of shalom, the Hebrew word for peace and, and reconciliation. Uh, particularly, one of the descriptions of shalom being that the lion will lie with the lamb. 
There are many descriptions in Scripture about, um, about the love of animals and particularly the reconciliation of everything in this world, including animals. But what is key time and time again is that to access that shalom, Jesus particularly calls humanity to reconcile with its God. We don't know exactly why it happened like this, but we know that this is not the way it ought to be. And our access into shalom is particularly in responding to Jesus as the question of who is he is pressed onto our hearts. Now, one might have expected the locals uh, to kind of uh, appear on the scene very grateful to sort of re- to see their friend Bill again. We don't get his name, but they would have finally recognized him again. He would have had his kind of original name sort of you know, bestowed upon him again, his humanity restored. Instead, they seem quite unimpressed. More than that, they are fearful. What's interesting is that as they see, again, that this, this man of power at work in their midst, just like the disciples, they are terrified. Who is this that's even more powerful than the guy that scared us and has been terrifying us for so long? What else might he do? But instead of leaning in to inquire more, take a step of faith, is he good? Who is he? They finish the fear, the story, by rejecting him and pushing him away. Jesus, get away from us. Meanwhile, the demoniac who has now been uh, restored, has had his life transformed, comes before Jesus, I want to follow you. I mean, his life's just been kind of totally renewed. Like, that is a totally appropriate response. Jesus, I want to give you my life. Let me follow you. Jesus says, no, I want you to go back and tell of God's mercy. And so for as much as the townspeople try and push Jesus away, the good news of Jesus, uh, it, it, just, it just flows on. The story of what happened here will prompt many other people to ask, who is this? Who is Jesus? In the first week of Alpha, Alpha's on my mind and heart at the moment, there's a vox pop in the video that we show that simply asks people, uh, who do you think Jesus is? It's a question I love to ask. I love asking people to just genuinely inquire who, what people think of Jesus. I want to know what their story, what their version of the good news is uh, before I preach or anything like that. Uh, I want them to see Jesus, to discover him. It's a great question. And, and in the Vox Pop, you get all kinds of answers, classic answers. Uh, he's a good teacher. He, he doesn't exist. He is everything. But by that, they mean kind of he's in the plants and in the animals and in the chairs. And he's, he's in everything all kinds of answers to the question of who is Jesus, but it is fascinating to think about who are we to think that we can answer that on our own? As though you could sort of dream up a Mike Hasty when I'm just here and you don't have the ability to just give me a title, give me a character, give me a story. I am who I am and you have to discover that. Jesus is who he is and we need to discover who he is, not who we think he is. Now, the the title of he is just a good teacher is not sufficient. Jesus does not come in this story to set up a school for the tormented. Okay, that that option is not available to us. Here he is, uh, quite visibly, a person of power. So that the answer to who is Jesus has to be more than just a good teacher. Well, we don't get too long to dwell on that because the story keeps on moving. And the next two stories that press into the question of who is Jesus are sandwiched together. 
Now, Mark does this a few times through his gospel to intensify uh, what he's driving at and to bring into sharper focus what's happening. Here we've got two stories of, of desperation and hopelessness, not unlike what we've already seen. They are intertwined, a story of a person of notability and a story of a person who has no name. Both act uh, on faith as they lean into the partial answer they have about who Jesus is and kind of inquire of him, seek him. And I love kind of how they lean into Jesus, not having the full answer, but being optimistic, particularly from their place of need. So we're back in Israel, the boats crossed the lake again, which makes me think, as I said before, that Jesus just crossed the lake to deliver that man from the dominion of darkness uh, and pick it up again in 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders, now remember the synagogue leaders uh, and sort of many of the Jewish religious leaders were often in conflict with Jesus, but this man named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now, whatever Jairus knows about Jesus, he knows enough to think that Jesus might be able to help him in his desperate need. And when a child is sick, uh, every parent will do whatever they can in desperation to find help. And for whatever he thinks of Jesus, whatever his tribe think of Jesus, all of that comes down as he reaches out in faith for help. And what I love about Jesus, what he does next, is he's not just a preacher on a, on a whirlwind tour, getting on his plane, doing some gig, preaching, getting back on the plane and preaching at the next gig. He came to preach. He told us very clearly in chapter 1, and yet when he, when he encounters someone with a real tangible need, whatever he has planned next, he puts on pause. And, and he follows down into Jairus' story to meet him in his greatest need. So Jesus went with him, we're told. Curious, the crowd follows what will happen next, and as the predicament is set up, the crowd and we with them follow, only to be redirected. Because as much as the camera zooms out to the crowd that are about to move on to Jairus' house as he hurriedly leads them, the camera then zooms into a woman in the crowd, a woman who has no name, but is also critically desperate. She too is reaching out to Jesus. Verse 25, a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. And she was now at the end of possibility of hope. Instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Do you see what's happening here? Out of hopelessness again, out of shame even, she is reaching out to Jesus with a partial answer to who she thinks he is in the hope that he might meet her in her need. And having exhausted all human hope, she leans in, takes a step of faith. And she was hoping that something would change. What she didn't expect was that something would change in Jesus. Who touched me? Jesus says. He instantly recognizes a, a kind of a, a shift in his power. For she'd been healed in the moment that she touched Jesus. And yet Jesus is not just kind of a magic genie walking through the crowd where everyone can touch his clothes and away they go. He is a personal God of power. And, and, he, and he stops and he says, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples are kind of like, what are you talking about? Everyone's touching their clothes, Jesus. 
but Jesus personally knew what was happening. And think about what's happening for the woman in that moment. When she's just touched him, she's just been miraculously healed, she knows it, and now she suddenly stops in fear, as it were, as Jesus says, who touched me? She's like, well, I did. But she's not visible in the crowd right there because Jesus is turning around. She's disappeared again, back into shame perhaps, I don't know. But Jesus pursues her, who touched me? What she does next is vulnerable. Verse 33, she fell at his feet and trembling with fear, again we see fear, and told him the whole truth. This is such an intimate and beautiful and challenging moment as she opens herself up completely to this person of power who she only knows in part. What will Jesus do with that whole truth? Will Jesus be happy that she took power from him? We all desire to be known, fully known, and to know. And in that moment, Jesus opens up a personal encounter. He is not satisfied for her to be healed without that. See, Jesus takes her deeper than she imagined. Firstly, he says, your faith has healed you. His words interpret her experience. Secondly, he says, now go in peace. The woman has told her everything. She has been healed in that moment. And now Jesus makes her whole. Think about what it would have been like for Tit in 12 years, bleeding, an outcast, no doctor could help you. And in that moment, Jesus in power has made her whole. That is the good news and the power of Jesus for her. And she is now able to answer the question of who is Jesus because he is the one who heals her, he is the one who makes her whole, and he is the one who cares for her. Like he stopped the whole world just for her in that moment. But bringing peace is always costly. We will ultimately see that as Jesus dies on the cross to bring peace. But in this moment, for Jesus to stop and help this woman with no name and bring dignity to her and bring wholeness to her, it seems to be at the cost of Jairus' daughter. Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and say to him, your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? I find that phrase, why bother the teacher anymore? It, it, is, it is respectful, but it masks what would be a shattering disappointment. That moment when the ground falls out where there was hope and now there is none. Don't bother him anymore. Like we've troubled him already. We're lost in this predicament. There was never really any hope. Good, good try though. And they're left in their tears. Except that Jesus knows this. He, he hears their worst fears realized. And he says, do not be afraid. He speaks right into their fear again. Have faith. But what the heck does that mean? She's dead. For the fourth time, we see Jesus respond in power and call us to some kind of radical faith beyond what our circumstances would allow us. 
the storm that he calms, the demoniac that he transforms, the suffering woman who he brings wholeness to. And now Jesus reaches into the very depth of fear of death and says, have faith. This time the answer to the question of who is Jesus and what is he going to do is only going to be available to a select few. He only takes some of his disciples, Peter, James and John. He leaves the crowd behind and he goes with Jairus to his house. And through the commotion of wailers, family members and all those who have been brought in to soak the event of death in tears and somber tones, he cuts through and says, why all this commotion and wailing? Like what's wrong with Jesus? Does he, does he not have any EQ here? Does like, has he totally misread the situation? But then he goes even further, the child is not dead but asleep. This would have hit people very differently, I can imagine. No doubt offensively to the silenced family. Uh, Perhaps to the professional wailers who are brought into Jewish uh, funerals. Well, they are the ones perhaps to respond in in laughter, scoffing laughter, ridiculing laughter, or just maybe that kind of of unprovoked uh, response when someone says something so outlandish that you don't have words. Whatever the case is, how could Jesus dare say this as though they had not exhausted every possibility and just missed the fact that she was asleep? Well, who is this Jesus and what is he going to do? Talitha kum, he says in Aramaic. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And as dead as she was, she might as well have been sleeping when hit with the power of Jesus. For she awoke and she ate and the crowd in that little house were completely astonished. Jairus took a step of faith towards Jesus, having some kind of answer of who he was when he asked Jesus, to heal his sick daughter. But in the face of death, he lost all hope, as we all would. And in that moment, Jesus led him even further. See, as we lean into Jesus, as we put our trust in him and take a step toward him, we find ourselves in a much bigger story than we ever anticipated. And the inner story intensifies this when Jesus doesn't allow the woman to just go off healed, but opens up this space to personally encounter her and she, him. That she might be able to answer to his face, as it were, who is Jesus? Of course, the story doesn't finish here, nor does it reside only as a story of history. At the center of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the greatest act of power and deliverance that you have ever known. For Jesus ultimately died on the cross, letting himself succumb to Satan, death, and the consequences of our sin, only to rise again as the conqueror of Satan, death, disease, and sin, so that we might no longer fear, but be known and forgiven, and loved. Many of us will know this. 
I remember when I was a teenager, I knew this story. I grew up in a Christian household, and I'd heard the story many times, even as my mum kind of moved the felt board story things in Sunday school. And yet I found myself on this camp uh, where, again, I hear the story of Jesus' death. And uh, I'm like, oh, here we go again. And I was a macho boy trying to be macho. Uh, Not very successfully, I might add. But what happened uh, on that camp, as that preacher got up and shared the story of Jesus' death, I was was struck afresh. Not only by by forgiveness on offer through the Lord Jesus, but that God would, would look at me, particularly me, personally me, and consider me worthy of that. That I would be worthy of such a sacrifice to be lifted up and to be called and delighted in as a child of God. And as this macho boy, that story went from my head into my heart and I wept. I'm grateful for these moments of encountering Jesus in fresh ways. Our stories ought to be littered with them. We don't always feel that. And yet, this is not a story that's just to be read with our heads. It's a story that sinks into our hearts and sets our lives on fire. And particularly, reaches into every fear of our life, even the fear of death, and brings peace and wholeness and hope. In the first week of Alpha, I know I'm banging on about Alpha, but uh, I was fascinated to hear Bear Grylls talk about his testimony. We all know Bear Grylls of old. Um, I've stopped watching it long ago, but nonetheless, um, he's an interesting character, and he trusts Jesus with his life. And it's interesting when he talks about that. He talks about the, the confidence that Jesus gives him, uh, the hope out of hopelessness that it gives him, the meaning that it gives him. He gets asked the question, isn't Christianity just a crutch? You know, just for desperate people. And here's a bunch of stories of desperate people who kind of, you know, just desperately needed Jesus. Isn't that all Christianity is? And if anyone's going to talk about Christianity as a crutch, I mean, Bear Grylls is the guy. I mean, he could make a crutch out of a lizard's tail and a bunch of sticks and hobble out of a desert with a broken ankle. But here he is talking about how Jesus is his crutch, as it were. He owns it. He says this, a crutch makes you stand, makes you stronger. I need a bit of that understatement of the year. At the heart of faith is that I'm known by Christ and bought with a price. There is no fear left for I can stand tall before God. That is the response of someone found in this story who has encountered Jesus and knows what it is for his goodness, his power to soak into every fear, that there is nothing that you would ever fear because Jesus conquers over all. Hope is restored. Uh, But as I finish, I can't help but think of how that's just too easy. For, For many of us, we look at these stories and we say we need that power. For some of us here, this story will feel very distant. Jesus might even feel distant. Jesus might even feel like it's just a head thing as you struggle in your faith. But if that's you, can I encourage you to do what the uh, Jairus and, and what the suffering woman did, and that is, with whatever knowledge you have of Jesus, would you lean in? Would you take a step of faith that you would allow Jesus uh, to encounter you and you Him? When people come to me and say, Mike, I'm just, I'm not feeling Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't know His power in my life right now. 
One of the first things I do is I say, would you tell Jesus that? Would you actually have a personal conversation? Would you commune with the living God in that moment of prayer? And if you don't have the strength to pray, I will pray with you. That we might pray your your heart, that we might pray your fears and bring that into the gospel and allow Jesus to respond. Would you lean in, take a step of faith? But secondly, and perhaps a bit more hard-hitting, is that some of us are really struggling in the face and the ravaging nature of death, disease and suffering. And we long for this Jesus of power and deliverance to be known in the depth of that suffering and despair. If that's you, know that when Jesus meets these people in Mark 5, he is meeting them in their needs. He knows their needs. He knows their suffering as he will suffer later on in Mark's gospel. And he affirms in those moments that this is not the way it's meant to be. Because what he does as he, as he exercises his power, as he delivers them, is he opens up a window, as it were, into a greater reality, into a more ultimate reality. He peels back the veil of suffering and says, there will be a time when there is no more sin and suffering, when there is no more uh, power of Satan. And he really opens up that window when he suffers himself unto death. So that whatever fear we have between now and when we meet Jesus face to face, we are not alone in that. And that fear is no longer the dominating part of our story. We are no longer driven by fears because Jesus is a conqueror. He has exercised his God power for us. That ultimately, all of this suffering will disappear. But between now and then, he will walk with us. And he will speak his good news into every part of our life, even our fears. Here is one who gives us real hope. Who meets us and walks with us and delivers us. Let me pray. Father, you know every single one of our stories. You invite us to come before you and tell you the whole truth. The hard bits, the bits we've hidden from ourselves even, the bits where we've wronged you, the bits where we struggle with faith to believe that you really are good and powerful. Father, in response to Mark 5, We see your power and we long for it to be made known in this world. We thank you that you have been raised from death, that you have shown your power to all the world. Father, help us to trust you again and again, that every day your mercies might be afresh and that you might speak words of power into our frailty and our fears until we see you face to face and all will be revealed and perfected. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.